Hey, listeners, it's 2024, and we are so excited for everything ahead this year. If you haven't done so already, make sure to check out our Patreon at patreon.com slash curbsiders, where you can get access to bonus episodes. We've already released 18 of them, and they come out twice a month. Plus, you can get access to ad-free episodes and our private Discord server to hang out with other members of the Cashlack community. That's patreon.com slash curbsiders. All right, Paul, we'll see how this goes. You know, Paul, ever since I got my lung removed, I'm happy to tell you that I've cut my smoking in half. Nothing? Mm. <laughs> okay. <laughs> the Curbsiders Podcast is for entertainment, education, and information purposes only, and the topics discussed should not be used solely to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any diseases or conditions. Furthermore, the views and statements expressed on this podcast are solely those of those and should not be interpreted to reflect official policy or position of any entity, aside from possibly cash like moral hospital and affiliate outreach programs, if indeed there are any. In fact, there are none. Pretty much, we aren't responsible if you screw up. You should always do your own homework and let us know when we're wrong. Welcome back to The Curbsiders. I'm Dr. Matthew Frank Watto, here with my great friend and America's primary care physician, Dr. Paul Nelson-Williams. Paul, how are you doing? <laughs> you, you seem to be struggling saying that tonight, Matt. Has something changed? I'm good. How are you? I, maybe I'm just still tired from the weekend. I, I don't really know. But uh, I'm excited, Paul. This is an episode where we are going to review some stories that were featured in recent or future issues of the digest our our monthly newsletter so of course with us we have a wonderful co-host and i'll let you introduce her in a second paul but first can you remind people what is it that we do on the curbsiders Sure. Happy to, as always. Typically, we are, well, always we are the internal medicine podcast, but typically we use expert interviews to bring you clinical pearls and practice changing knowledge. These episodes are a little bit different. As you mentioned, we go through some of the, the past and future digest um, articles, sort of news you can use or maybe you can't use, but stuff that's kind of happening out there in the zeitgeist and sort of what you should know and what you need to know to impress your friends out on the wards. And as you mentioned, we're joined by the editor of the digest, the, the great um, producer extraordinaire, uh, Dr. Nora Toronto. Nora, how are you? I'm doing well. How are you guys? I'm excited. I'm, I am a big fan of your monthly newsletter, and it's good to be doing this now in podcast form because I feel like we get to go a little bit more in depth on some of these stories and try to figure out if these should or shouldn't change our practice. And uh, when we do this so frequently, I feel like it really does help me keep up with what's happening and and, and remember it better too. I know. I feel like I end up talking about these studies more and and I'm always curious what your your thoughts are on on them but I feel like it keeps me up to date on everything. Yeah, I, and I like to run all the medical literature through America's primary care physician right, to get like course. his take on it. So yeah. yeah, that's a great idea I think for everyone. <laughs> <laughs> all right. A reminder that this and most episodes uh, are available through VCU Health at curbsiders.vcuhealth.org. You can claim CME there. And also, if you're not yet uh, a member, please sign up to join uh, our Patreon at patreon.com slash curbsiders, where you can get bonus episodes, ad-free episodes, and all sorts of other cool stuff. So check it out at patreon.com slash curbsiders. And now, Paul, I wanted to start off with something just for you. We all know that you're a big trial head, and uh, a listener named Jess, I'm going to withhold her last name because I didn't get permission to say her full name on air, and I don't want to embarrass her. But uh, Jess, uh, she wrote us, thank you for all your great work. 
I'm a relatively new listener, and I've really been enjoying the podcast. In particular, I loved the recent episode on antiphospholipid antibody syndrome and the replay of the gut-brain axis. Um, she said there were some aha moments, and she said she thought of us last night when she came across the best-slash-worst trial name she's seen in a while. The study of the prevention of anal cancer, the SPANK trial, Paul. Maybe you already know about it, but if not, you're welcome. And she said, thanks for all the work you do. So what do you think, Paul? Reactions to the trial name? <laughs> so first of all, thanks to Jess. I, anytime she wants to send trial names our way, we appreciate it. I, I like to be thought of. I don't know, dude. It's a peek behind the curtain for our listeners. When we do our idiotic puns at the beginning, like there is some agonizing, like, is this going to offend people? Will this hurt feelings? Like, is this dismissive of something that is actually a serious problem? So we, we there is a whole lot of internal vetting as we agonize over these moronic puns that we actually do. So the Spank trial, I don't know. It's, it, it feels like it comes from the mindset. If people are talking about it, it's good. But on the other hand, I just find it, <laughs> considering the seriousness of the topic that it's covering, the name itself just kind of um, does not sit right with me, so to speak. So I don't know. What was your take on it? I mean, it is from the University of New South Wales in Sydney, so maybe the sense of humor is a bit different. Uh, I'm not. I'm not sure. I'm just uh, Nora. What about you? What did you think about this? And any any thoughts on the image that I pasted into <laughs> into the script? Yeah, I mean, I think that the name and the image go well together, and it seems like they have a communal founding principle of just taking it maybe a little bit a little bit further than than we might. Uh, the image is just pretty amazing. And I assume we're going to include it in our show notes for the episode. Yeah. yeah um, I don't know if we can include the image because of, but we will include a link. link to yeah. the website to, because the image is <laughs> the rear end of what I'm assuming is it's, it's a very muscular, uh, naked, the, the rear, uh, a rear end of a very muscular naked man with a pink or I don't know, mm -hmm. red X, yeah. uh, crossing out, uh, over the butt. And, uh, it's, it's over the yeah. anus, I think specifically. Yes, it's specifically. <laughs> Just to remind so me, the internal I, medicine I saw podcast. that and I, <laughs> I was shocked, Paul, when I looked because I was just uh -huh. trying to look up what the spank trial was about. And it, but it turns out like they're, they're basically following people. Uh, I think they're going to do three screenings over five years and doing anal pap testing in, um, you know, basically looking for anal cancer, trying to figure out how frequently they should screen people. And so it's obviously an important topic. Yeah, but important uh, stuff. you know, we're immature. So the something called the Spank trial, we gotta we gotta talk about it. And they have published this is this is a real real study. It's worth noting. Oh. <laughs> worth noting. So okay, all right. But now on to speaking of cancer, Nora, um, you are. You are beautiful transition. <laughs> you are going to present our first article. So please tell us, tell us uh, what were you reading? So uh, Target TP, which looked at targeted thromboprophylaxis in outpatients with uh, cancer who were receiving chemotherapy, um, looked at uh, whether or not starting low molecular weight heparin or enoxaparin would actually reduce the incidence of venous thromboembolism or arterial thromboembolism in patients who are uh, in the clinic and starting chemotherapy. Um, now, we know that patients with cancer have an increased risk of clotting of various sorts, um, and that risk actually differs depending on the type of cancer with uh, 
in particular gastrointestinal cancers as well as brain, lung, and uh, ovarian cancer having the highest incidence across different studies. And uh, so trying to figure out what to do in terms of prophylaxing them, like we are prophylaxing patients in the hospital, is why this study was done. And there have been a couple of other uh, prophylaxis-oriented uh, trials in the outpatient setting over the last five to 10 years that have looked at apixaban and rivaroxaban. But this study actually used a new risk stratification tool, looking at two labs, looking at fibrinogen and then D-dimer, which can easily be obtained in the outpatient setting to try to risk stratify patients into high-risk and low-risk cohorts, even among those patients with lung and GI cancers. And Nora, per our convention, was this a positive or negative trial? What are the top line results of this? Yeah, so top line results um, in this cohort of around 300 patients, uh, it was a positive trial. And uh, they found that in the high-risk cohort, randomization to anoxaparin or low-molecular weight heparin compared to placebo decreased the incidence of uh, thromboembolism significantly. And so that was just in the high-risk cohort. And yet again, this is risk stratification based on the the D-dimer and fibrinogen levels. In the low-risk cohort, uh, the risk was about what one would expect introducing thromboprophylaxis or anoxaparin in this cohort, in the high-risk cohort, actually decreased the risk of thromboembolism to around the, the low-risk cohort incidence. Um, so it brought brought the risk down substantially. So you mentioned that this trial used a new uh, a new risk score because the the one that I had heard of it, it was it's called the Corana K H O R A N A score right and that that goes by like the cancer type platelet count hemoglobin yep. leukocyte count and their BMI and then it, it kind of risk stratifies them high medium or low based on that. Mm-hmm. So is that one the one that most people use clinically right now? So this is, I think, why this study is kind of important to talk about. Um, people aren't really prophylaxing in the outpatient setting. They aren't starting patients routinely on prophylactic anticoagulation for patients with cancer, unless they have another indication mm-hmm. to be on it. And so while we're doing this very routinely in in the hospital and when patients are admitted for surgery or, or just admitted generally, they're on something, whether it's uh, an oxaparin or it's a DOAC. But uh, this really hasn't actually taken hold in the outpatient setting for, for a variety of reasons, probably. But um, so, so people aren't using the Corona score as much as you might think. Um, and then kind of interestingly in the study, and if you get into the kind of the discussion and the, the results looking at the nitty gritty of comparing the Corona score to the risk stratification they used with the D-dimer and fibrinogen, the patients uh, who had higher Corona scores actually didn't, uh, the risk stratification in this population was not actually particularly well uh, stratified by Corona score. So patients, uh, w- even with high Corona scores or higher Corona scores, had about the same incidence of VTE as the patients with low, whereas the fibrinogen and D-dimer combination seemed to actually predict a better predict better whether you in fact have a high risk in the in the study period or a low risk. Mm. It's it's interesting because I was reading the editorial that came along with this. Mm-hmm. I believe Karana actually wrote it. Yeah. 
and uh, was, you know, it, it seemed like the, maybe there was a little bit of competitive competition there amongst them. But so, yeah, that was my take home from this uh, was that the, there is a risk score out there. There, there are guidelines. The editorial was saying that since like 2019, the guidelines have said if people are high risk by the Corona score, mm-hmm. that you should consider putting them on prophylaxis for malignancy while they're, I guess, while they're undergoing chemotherapy. But it's just not really done much right now and needing to figure out a way to, like, where do we go from here? Because it seems like it is, you can legitimately prevent harm with it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And then the the only two other things I'll say, one is that this study, uh, the target TP study, actually found a significant survival benefit with the prophylaxis group mm-hmm. um, compared to the no prophylaxis, which has not been shown in other studies. And it's it's mm. quite significant, I think, both from a like sheer absolute numbers perspective, but also from statistically. And so one thing that they want, they mention in the discussion of the study, they need to follow up on this because other studies in this domain have not demonstrated that. But if that is in fact the case, that kind of confers even more power to to this notion that we should be doing it. And yeah, and then I guess the only other thing is just keeping in mind that whereas the the other studies that have looked at this have looked at kind of bigger populations with not just GI and lung cancer, this study does focus on those two. So I think it's it's somewhat generalizable, but but not 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 uh, the, the two cancers you're seeing the most, so it's not. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> that population yeah, yeah. And then the only other thing is is just to keep in mind that kind of this uh, this notion of patients being high risk at the beginning of their diagnostic and therapeutic journey, um, that risk does change, and so so there is some some thought about and and uncertainty about kind of how long do patients need to be on prophylaxis um, at this window of time where they're actually starting chemotherapy seems to be kind of one of the higher risk windows in in other yeah. studies. So how do you see this playing out in the future? Like if, if Paul's seeing patients in primary care, do you think primary care doctors will think of this or do you think the oncologists are going to yeah. start people on, on, on medication in three to six months or something while they're going on therapy and then reevaluate every three to six months? Yeah. I mean, I I could see, I'm curious what your guys' thoughts are, but I could see it playing out in both ways because I think the oncology visit for patients who are on chemotherapy is often just really focused on like how they're doing from the toxicity perspective or what the toxicities of chemotherapy will be, which can include clot. But um, but so I could imagine this might actually fall through the cracks and that that may in fact be a piece of why this the uptake on this hasn't been all that good. Uh, and so so it may be kind of in between domains mm-hmm. of the oncology and the primary care. But but I also think it there are a lot of important questions that need to be answered about the like duration of anticoagulation and and how that risk changes over time, which which is probably gonna just be a collaboration between everyone. Paul, what do you think? I mean, I, this is the eternal survivorship debate, right? Like yeah. it's, it's who's somebody you just, I think one assumes the other is in charge of something and right. it's just going to fall through the cracks. And I, I, I don't think this will be taken up by primary care doctors primarily. I think it might prompt a conversation like reaching out to oncology being like, Hey, should yep. we be talking about this or not? But you know, I think most PCPs will think, well, this person trained in hematology <laughs> at yep. some point in their career, they would probably know if this person needs anticoagulation or not and sort of trust that the right thing is being done. But hopefully, you know, if anything, this study will hopefully 
drive conversation so that we, sort of there's more uptake among these high risk groups to actually, you know, prevent harm. This episode is brought to you by Factor. If you're listening to this podcast, chances are you're an incredibly busy person, which means you probably know it is really hard to find the time and the energy, frankly, to shop and meal prep for the week and have a lot of really healthy, well-prepared meals kind of ready for you. And so the temptation is to maybe not eat as well as you deserve. Well, Factor has delicious, ready-to-eat meals that make eating better every day easy. Wherever tomorrow takes you, you can be ready with pre-prepared, chef-crafted, and dietitian-approved meals delivered right to your door. Factor has over 35 options a week to choose from, including keto, calorie smart, vegan plus veggie, and more. And there's even more to enjoy with over 55 nutrition-packed add-ons that help make your weekly meal planning even more delicious. Factor has two-minute meals. You can fuel up fast with Factor's restaurant-quality meals that are ready to heat and eat wherever you are. Factor also has snacks, smoothies, and more. You can discover a wide variety of easy options for the entire day like breakfast, midday bites, and more. Factor is less expensive than takeout, and every meal is dietitian-approved to be nutritious and delicious. It is flexible, which means you can get as much or as little as you need by choosing 6 to 18 meals per week, and you can pause or reschedule deliveries anytime. There's no prep, no mess, and Factor meals are 100% ready to heat and eat, so there's no prepping, cooking, or cleanup needed. Head to factormeals.com slash curb50 and use code curb50 to get 50% off. That's code curb50 at factormeals.com slash curb50 to get 50% off. This episode is brought to you by NetSuite by Oracle. Sometimes when your business gets to a certain size, the cracks start to emerge. The things that you do over the course of a day are starting to take a week. You have too many manual processes and you don't have one source of truth. And if this is you, you should know these three numbers. Those numbers are 37,000, 25, and 1. 37,000 is the number of businesses which have upgraded to NetSuite by Oracle. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system which streamlines accounting, financial management, inventory, HR, and more. 25. NetSuite turns 25 this year. That's 25 years of helping businesses do more with less, close their books in days, not weeks, and drive down costs. And the number one, because your business is one of a kind. So you get customized solution for all of your key performance indicators in one efficient system with one source of truth. Manage risk, get reliable forecasts, and improve margins. Everything you need to grow, all in one place. Right now, you can download NetSuite's popular KPI checklist, which is designed to give you consistently excellent performance absolutely free at netsuite.com slash curbsiders. That's netsuite.com slash curbsiders to get your own KPI checklist. netsuite.com slash curbsiders. And then one last question, Nora. You said that they were using the low dose, like the 40 milligrams in oxaparin. Mm-hmm. Yep. In this one, but uh, with DOAX, is it the is the low dose of like apixaban or rivaroxaban that would be used for this? Yeah, and and I think the data is the strongest with the apixaban. The um, I think it was the two point five milligrams twice daily of the apixaban, but and then I think also the yeah the ten of the rivaroxaban. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. All right. So, any final thoughts on this uh, or recommendations to the audience? No, I mean, I think exactly what Paul said, like, this is something that sometimes can be overlooked. And in the inpatient to outpatient transition also is probably worth like as if you're a hospitalist or or working on the inpatient side with these patients saying, oh, we did this while they were here. Like, is this something we should continue since they're Mm going to be starting therapy soon? So 
All right. So, you know, speaking of an inpatient and outpatient uh, topic, Paul, COPD, uh, I always struggle with COPD exacerbation. Who needs steroids? Who needs antibiotics? Do you have anything to tell us about this? <laughs> Do you struggle with that? I was actually open by asking that. So it's the the article I'll be talking about is this blood eosinophil guided oral prednisolone for COPD exacerbations in primary care in the UK, aka the STAR-2 trial. That's two R's in STAR, so making it all piratey. And this is a non-inferiority trial, and we'll talk about that. That basically what the investigators were looking at. So it's I, I we know that treating COPD in patients who have eosinophilia with inhaled corticosteroids has benefit. Like we've used eosinophilia as a guide who actually gets inhaled corticosteroids, but we have not typically used eosinophilia as a way to determine who gets systemic steroids during acute exacerbations of COPD. So the investigators looks like had done some prelim work that suggested that, you know, the outcomes were not inferior or maybe even superior using this approach of looking at peripheral eosinophilia as a means to determine whether or not a patient would actually warrant steroids or not. Does that make sense so far? Yeah. Yeah. So you want to, let's do the top line results and we'll ask some follow-up questions. So the top line of this is that if you use peripheral eosinophilia as your marker to guide who gets steroids, it's not inferior to just kind of firing off steroids to every patient who you think has an acute exacerbation of COPD. So the patients don't seem to do any better if they don't have eosinophilia, if you just don't treat them with, um, with systemic corticosteroids. So that's, that's the bottom line of this trial, which I found kind of surprising. So to yeah. get into the nitty gritty of it, <laughs> goodbye. And Paul, I, one thing I was going to say, like a big up upfront, not necessarily limitation, but a practical limitation of this one is they were using point of care eosinophil testing, which yeah. I did not know. You know, I don't really know that that's available any place that I've ever worked. Yeah. You're, you're jumping to my limitations, but yeah, so they're, they're using <laughs> as whether or not this will be practice changing. I think that certainly plays into it. They were also using point of care CRP testing as well. Mm -hmm. And that's exactly right. And then the outcome that, that they were looking at in terms of whether or not the treatments were effective or not was this was at 30 days. The primary outcome that they were looking at is at 30 days, they're looking at treatment failure, which was defined as needing retreatment. So you had to go back and give them more steroids and more antibiotics or hospital admission or death, which is really the ultimate treatment failure at 30 days. And they, they did secondary outcomes that included the things that I'm actually kind of interested in, which like health healthcare related quality of life and symptom scores and actually even some spirometric measurements as well. So to get into this trial, you, you had to be over the age of 40. You had to be either a current user of tobacco or have used tobacco in the past. I think at least 10 pack years, if I remember correctly, and had at least one COPD exacerbation within the past year. And they basically randomized these patients one-to-one -one into two different groups. So one group got the standard of care at that time, which is also important. And then the other group was the eosinophilia guided therapy. And within that group, if they had elevated peripheral eosinophils, then they were given steroids. And if they did not, then they were not. So everyone in the standard group received prednisolone 30 milligrams for a total of 14 days. Does this make sense so far? Mm -hmm. Yep. And I guess the first thing that jumped out at me as I'm sort of looking at this is 14 days worth of treatment, I don't think is what most of us are doing these days. No. And I calculated, uh, you know, cause I like math, Paul. So it was, <laughs> I'm so, so, so much surprised by this. Yeah. The, the prednisolone and prednisone are a one-to-one, -one, right? Mm -hmm. So, and they were giving 30 milligrams for 14 days. So that's a total dose of 420 milligrams over those two weeks. And then what we typically give is 40 milligrams for five days, 200 milligrams. So more than twice the dose of steroid that we usually give uh, in, in the U S thank you for doing that. Um, I, I meant to, and then was just too lazy to, but I knew that I had you as backup, but I, I think the important <laughs> thing here is that we're, 
the whole reason to go through this whole rigmarole is because we know systemic corticosteroid exposure comes with its own set of harms. And they actually make a lot of hay out of the number needed to harm is actually lower than the number needed to treat um, looking at prior meta-analyses. So this aggressive treatment with prolonged courses of steroids is probably doing more harm than good they were presupposing. So the idea is to limit as much exposure as possible. But meanwhile, this trial is designed where the actual intervention was not the way that we actually treat COPD these days and was with a prolonged treatment course uh, over 14 days. I think the other thing that was interesting is regardless of what group you're into, you also got 200 milligrams of doxycycline for seven days. And this was regardless of sort of the symptoms that you had, you know, just recall that typically the treatment of COPD exacerbations with, with antibiotic therapy, at least warrants, you have to have purulence of sputum or increased dyspnea, or I think increased volume of sputum. You have to meet some of these sort of criteria to suggest using it. You don't just sort of shotgun everyone with antibiotics. So I, yeah, Paul, the cardinal symptoms, right? The two, you got to have two or three. <laughs> yeah. And they they didn't use the CRP testing because that was that was one of the other things. The gold guidelines actually mentioned that the point of care CRP testing is being looked at to see if if you should pull the trigger on antibiotics based on CRP, which it, yes, so far but that was not used. It was just every, if you if you're in the trial, you got yourself some doxycycline. Yeah, it's a shame because Paul, we just we want one of these tests that just like give me these tests. That how great would that be, Paul? You get a point of care CRP, get a point of care eosinophils, and then it just tells you what to do. I don't think that's going to happen. It's probably not going to happen. <laughs> that, which I guess raises the other. So there's lots of things. You know, I already told you this sort of the outcome. So. Let me, let me talk to you about the limitations here and I actually just recap the outcome first if I can. So basically at the end of the day, there were fewer treatment failures in the patients who had eosinophilia who were treated with steroids than those who had eosinophilia who were not treated with steroids. And there was no real difference if you did not have elevated eosinophils, whether or not you were treated or not. So which is to say the patients who benefited the most from steroid therapy, not surprisingly had elevated eosinophils. So great, good, makes sense. I, I'm kind of on board. But the, the limitations, I think, in this trial were numerous, and it was it was described by an accompanying editorial as landmark trial, which I think is a bold statement to say. But first of all, during the study, they actually had a significant randomization error a, a, <laughs> where that affected 60 patients, where basically what they found was that they were just misallocating treatments to the different treatment groups, and they actually had to sort of stop, take stock, do some statistical finagling. And the trial was initially designed to be a superiority trial, and unfortunately, they had to sort of backstep and be like, okay, this is actually, we're going to have to make this non-inferiority and they did modified intention to treat. So that's that's one. We mentioned the prolonged antibiotic course. That's two. The definition of a COPD exacerbation was actually the clinicians in the trial. So this was done at primary care sites, which I think is fantastic. But the decision to treat was by someone who's like, yep, that person probably needs steroids or not. And I do wonder if that didn't create some kind of unconscious bias towards only treating sicker patients because you knew that you were doing this study. And I, I again, this I don't think this is a bad bias. I don't think this invalidates their findings necessarily, but I do think it kind of skews the results a little bit. And then other stuff, the, the sort of the, the antimicrobial therapy, regardless of sort of symptoms or not, and then the the outcome measurement at 30 days, not really just, which is fine, I think. Actually, I guess I won't go yeah, that one so much. I think much. that one was fine. Yeah. I mean, the, one, the one question I had about that was that, I guess, how it related to like the fact that patients could be re-randomized if they had another exacerbation like yeah. after six weeks. And so part of me wonders whether like the fact that after six weeks, if they're having another exacerbation, which I think a good number of these patients were in fact re-randomized, whether yeah. or not they 
those patients, in fact, had somehow failed the therapy that we kind of initially thought they had mm. they had benefited from. So just it just made me a little bit kind of confused and uncertain of like whether or not these were truly separate events and independent events when they're being yeah. randomized. Yeah, and I do think the benefits of steroid therapy that we've seen so far are not these like huge mortality reductions. They're not like the lungs don't get magically better. Like it's these short-term outcomes like reductions in hospital stay and people not getting admitted to the hospital, which admittedly was included in part of the, these outcomes. But I just think empirically, which I know is not the best way to base your judgment to treat, but like the patients that I treat for CBD exacerbations feel better within a matter of days and like sort of follow up in 14 days at the minimum, like I just, I, I wonder the sort of the role of recall, like if there are some harder outcomes like hospitalizations and death, mm -hmm. which, which obviously matter, but like, I just, uh, you know, I, I don't know. I, I think there's sort of enough that made me scratch my head a little bit. And then also Matt, as you mentioned, the practicality of having a point of care, um, <laughs> complete blood count with a uh, differential device and, and offices to help make this determination also seems like I don't just foresee this changing practice anytime in the next mm -hmm. years, uh, really at this point. Me, I guess if the technology gets cheaper and uh, it's it gets widespread enough, I would love an, a stat diff, which this is basically sure. what that is. So yeah, <laughs> yeah. so I'm I'm excited about it. <laughs> All right, so let's move on because uh, we have a couple more things to talk about. So I wanted to talk about subclinical atrial fibrillation. Paul, do you have a clear concept of what that is in your head? Subclinical Crystal. AFib. Mm -hmm. You do. Yeah, okay. I screen all my patients for it it's like, as per <laughs> as per recommendations. No, yeah, I, I, I mean, don't know what that means. I feel like atrial. <laughs> yeah, I had to learn some new vocab. So clinical. What does that mean? Yes. Okay. So I will. I will go through the. I will go through the terminology. So there's there's two terms that, and we'll just use them interchangeably. But if you're reading the literature, there is atrial high rate episodes which are these episodes of high atrial rate that are device detected. So these are people with a pacemaker, defibrillator, some sort of implanted cardiac device that's detecting these high rate episodes. And those actually have to be adjudicated, meaning some, someone has to look at them and see if they're AFib or if they're artifact or something else. But a lot of the times they are AFib and these are asymptomatic episodes of AFib. So they are subclinical and they're they're these often short-lived, but it's it's pretty common in somebody that has device that has a device. And now with wearables, people are probably presenting with them even if they don't have an implanted device because you can capture it with your whatever your smartwatch is. So it's it's come up that what do we do with this subclinical atrial fibrillation, these atrial high rate events, especially if they're very brief, less than five minutes. The guidelines, the most recent guidelines from a ACC AHA, say you don't have to do anything about it, Paul. So less than five minutes, you know that that number. I don't know if that's if you've heard that that cited before, but apparently we can just ignore it if it's less than five minutes. Do you find that reassuring? Yeah, sure. That'd be, that's great. And <laughs> 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 that might stop. Watch out. So that's good news. Yeah. So of course, the big question is the people that have. Uh, that have more than five minutes, what do we do with them? So I, I, I guess the best figure I found to sort of think about how to do this is, is in the ACC AHA, it's figure 12, it's in their, their 2023 guideline. And basically as their burden of subclinical AFib goes up, meaning the more frequently they have it and the longer the duration, um, the more likely you are to recommend anticoagulation. And of course, as their risk factor for stroke goes up. So as their CHADS-VAS score gets above uh, two for men or three for women, 
you know, that kind of puts you in the higher risk group where it would be reasonable to pre prescribe anticoagulation like you would for clinical AFib where someone has symptoms or it's been actually captured on an EKG. But what I will say is there were two big trials, the NOAA AFNET trial and the Artesia trial, uh, which came out in the fall of 2023, looking at people who had between five and 24 hours of subclinical AFib captured on a device. And in one, one trial, the NOAA AFNET, they gave edoxaban. And in Artesia, they gave apixaban. Um, and they were looking at, does this decrease the risk of stroke? And they, they, they had slightly different endpoints, but essentially they were interested in stroke and they were interested in the incidence of bleeding. Any questions so far, comments, concerns? No? <laughs> okay. No, I'm just thinking it through. I just, in terms of the actual initial capture, you know, I think it's interesting. So, you, I mean, you, let's, let's exclude wearables for a hot second. But in terms of picking this up initially on someone who has some sort of implantable device, like I feel like if you have a pacer or an ICD in place already, the chances of you having a low chance VAS score yeah. seem small. You know what I mean? Like yes. you probably have risk factors for cardiovascular disease already. So it's just, it seems like an already at risk patient population. So I'm just trying to sort of wrangle my brain around how it make, which I guess is why you need more information to decide who to treat and who not to. Yeah. So yeah. this is me so just they, trying to keep up with you, Matt. So, I mean, they, the NOAA AFNET and the Artesia trial took people with Chad's VAST score of at least two or three. So, you know, people that you would consider treating if they had clinical AFib and they followed them out and they, and the NOAA AFNET trial was actually a negative trial, was stopped early because there was major bleeding, as you would expect with edoxaban more so than with placebo, which isn't surprising, but they did not find a reduction in stroke. The Artesia trial using a pixaban versus aspirin, it actually did find a reduction in stroke. It also did find uh, more bleeding with a pixaban, which was expected. And the number needed to treat in that was about 217 in Artesia, and the number needed to harm was 130. But the point the authors make is that they cut the risk of like disabling stroke like in half. So you know, it's it's not super clear, even though because the bleeding is often reversible, and they they didn't right. they didn't see more intracranial hemorrhage, you know, or more fatal bleeding necessarily. So, it's it's still a little bit unclear, you know, how you would proceed. So, any comments on that? Questions? I see Paul's like Paul's. <laughs> you don't look reassured by any of this. Well, it's it's. I mean, what do you do with that information? Sort of the eternal question. Like, I grant, I know this this sort of the old saw. Well, you can always get more blood, but like that's still. <laughs> It's, it's still not nothing. So it's, I just don't, uh, yeah, I, I don't quite know what to do with that necessarily. It does, it's, it does not, it would not leave me anticoagulating with wild abandon is what I would say. Yeah. Okay. I, Nora, I, any, any yeah. comments or questions before I yeah. get to my final take home? There were a couple of secondary endpoints that I was a little bit surprised seemed to actually favor from a bleeding perspective a pixaban, even though the like sheer number of events was higher with a pixaban. And so that made me uh, a little bit more open to thinking about anticoagulation mm -hmm. in these patients. But but I agree, it's it feels like you're kind of stuck between a rock and a hard place with from a stroke yeah. and bleeding perspective, which I guess is is right all of AFib. So. Yeah, I mean, I think as primary care, we're probably going to be more working with a cardiologist, like because because usually we're not the one interrogating the device. But if patients are coming to us with a wearable or something, and it, I guess in the future, if we if we're the one getting that information about how long or how much AFib they have, 
and it's between five minutes and 24 hours, then, Mm -hmm. you know, it would kind of be ball in our court whether or not we did this. But with these subclinical AFib, it it does have a lower risk, about 1% per year of stroke compared to patients with clinical AFib um, where they're symptomatic or it's, it's lasting longer. So the, the annual risk is 1% with the subclinical versus something like 3% annual risk for uh, people with a comparable score um, and clinical AFib. So the, the editorialist that was, uh, you know, wrote the editorial accompanying the Artesia trial basically said, you know, you're going to have to just manage bleeding risk, manage the risk for AF- risk factors for AFib. Paul, remember we talked about the pillars, you know, lifestyle, and there's rate control, rhythm control, all those kind of things, the pillars mm-hmm. for managing AFib. But basically, the lifestyle risk factors, us in primary care, is what we can manage to try to minimize their risk of AFib. Because AFib can progress, and it does progress from subclinical to clinical, and it can progress from paroxysmal to permanent AFib. We've seen that happen in our patients. So it's really going to be a very individualized decision for the patient. You know, how, how high is their risk for stroke? How high is their risk for bleeding? How well can you manage their risk factors and deciding with the patient whether or not they want to receive anticoagulation for this subclinical AFib, but not, not an easy one. I imagine there'll be more risk calculators and risk stratifiers, and it'll just become more and more nuanced as, yeah. as more and more data rolls in. It'll also be very interesting to see like how the Apple Watch and or or other devices that are not not actually internal, not like pacemakers mm-hmm. or or the um, implantable cardiac monitors actually uh, change both the population you're seeing this in, but also like the the risk stratification. Yeah. I just I, got very excited because I realized I, I have a chance to be that guy and say, well, I really think this is where AI will come in in the future. <laughs> <laughs> AI is the future. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So moving on to another cancer topic, uh, Nora, from you. Genetic testing in breast cancer. I heard there's new recommendations on that. Amazing. Uh, Yeah. And this one will be quick, uh, just as important to highlight since I think actually this will come up in primary care quite a bit. And this follows the episode on breast cancer uh, updates that just came out, I think today, actually. But uh, this is looking at the new uh, American Society of Clinical Oncology and Surgical Oncology uh, expert guidelines and updated recommendations on genetic testing in breast cancer. And uh, this consensus update uh, was uh, was published in the setting of lots of new data uh, on the risk of breast cancer uh, that's stratified by many different genetic mutations that have been discovered over the last 20 years. Um, Also in the setting of new drugs, actually, that can target some of these, and in particular, BRCA1 and 2. And so uh, in the setting of new drugs and uh, new information, uh, as well as a lot of ongoing uncertainty about Uh, from patients about what tests to get, how many tests to get, when to get them, um, and what to do with family history. Uh, The panel wanted to reissue and reassess uh, what the data showed and and, uh, to formulate some recommendations. Um, So that's kind of the the reason for this guideline update. The guideline update, uh, which was just published in the Journal of Clinical Oncology um, and was uh, covered by Dr. Alyssa Mancini in Digest 49, 
made a bunch of different recommendations, and we'll just focus on the top line ones. And the the top line number one recommendation was uh, that all patients who are newly diagnosed with breast cancer who are 65 or under should be offered BRCA1 and 2 testing. Um, so this is uh, a blanket recommendation based on age, uh, which has has uh, not actually been used before across this these guidelines. This episode is brought to you by Freed. Freed is an AI scribe that listens, transcribes, and writes medical documentation for you. Gabby, a family medicine physician, and Irez, a computer engineer, came up with Freed, a solution that could help alleviate the daily burden of overworked clinicians everywhere. And for Irez, selfishly, it would mean that he could spend more time with Gabby, who is spending nights, weekends, and holidays updating medical documentation. Free turns clinicians' daily workflow into accurate documentation instantly. There's no training time, no onboarding, and no extra mental burden. All of the magic happens in just a few clicks, so clinicians can spend less energy on charting and more time on doing what they do best. Today, more than 4,000 clinicians and their spouses have fallen in love with Freed. Freed is an AI scribe that does your medical documentation for you. Charting is critical and necessary, but it steals your focus away from your patients, eats away at your time with your family, and can keep you up at night. The burden of always having another chart to complete drains every clinician. Freed is an AI scribe that makes charting go away. It does your soap notes for you. Freed listens, prepares your notes, and writes patients' instructions. Charting is done before your patient walks out of the room. Freed learns your style over time, just like a human scribe, and it will never quit on you. Freed is loved by over 4,000 clinicians from every specialty. It is HIPAA compliant, it takes 30 seconds to learn, and it costs only $99 a month. You can try Freed for free right now by going to freed.ai. And listeners of Curbsiders can use the code CURB50 for $50 off their first month. Can I ask a potentially dumb question about this? When someone has a procedure or surgery for breast cancer, Mm -hmm. do they always test the tumor for BRCA mutations? No. So that's not a, that's actually not a dumb question at all. This is talk, this, this recommendation is actually related to germline testing. So inherited testing and not actually looking at the tumor tissue itself which those mutations that we look for are called somatic mutations. So those are not inherited. Those are just in the tumor, in the tumor, uh, in the tumor cells that opens a whole nother can of worms that we won't get into here and that the guidelines don't address. They there are, you can actually test tumors for BRCA1 and 2, but what we're talking about here is actually the, the inherited BRCA1 and 2 mutations that do actually confer the higher risk of breast cancer uh, in a family tree. Yeah. So-called yeah. germline mutations, yeah, right? Exactly. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So Matt, that was actually a great question. Allow yeah. me to ask a dumb question, or before you move on, I love it. I just, I do the wording of the recommendation itself mm-hmm. feels a little bit mealy mouth to me in terms of offering testing as opposed to patients yeah. should be tested. Is there, is this one of those informed decisions? Like obviously, yeah. all decisions are sure yeah. decision making, but like what? Uh, can you sort of get into exactly how, how strong a recommendation this is? Yeah, I mean, I think this is actually one of the stronger recommendations in looking at the other guidelines and other uh, society recommendations that have been published over the last like 10 years. So they all have a lot of slightly ambiguous, should be offered, should be counseled, should be risk stratified um, language in them. And I think a big part of that is exactly what you were saying, which is that 
this is a shared decision that doesn't only affect the patient. It affects their their kids. It affects their siblings, their parents, um, and uh, kind of informs a lot more. And so I think historically, a lot of the language has been more more like this, mm-hmm. the language here. And, and, and that's one of the reasons that there hasn't been a blanket age recommendation in general, um, with some exceptions. They're, they're kind of at the NCCN did have a lower age blanket recommendation. So mm-hmm. this is just expanding to a bigger, uh, bigger cohort of just breast cancer patients who are under a certain age. And I believe the guideline also says if, a, if I'm seeing a woman, even if she's now 70, but she mm-hmm. had breast cancer when she was 55 and she wants to be tested, you know, she, she can also be, they also would recommend testing that person, correct? Even if- Yeah. And they, they kind of caveat it even more, as I'm sure you notice, mm-hmm. they say, if it will inform personal or family risk. And they yeah. say that with a lot of the other recommendations as well. And the kind of long and short of it, and the reason they don't say that with the newly diagnosed breast cancer patients who are on 65 or under is because in fact, there are some kind of surgical and therapy decisions mm. that are that actually are informed by the result. And that's, that's because whether or not you're getting a unilateral mastectomy, lumpectomy, or a bilateral mastectomy can be informed by whether or not you have a BRCA1 or 2 mutation. People decide differently based on that. And so it actually is it is something that they think mm-hmm. about in surgical planning. And then also if they have high risk disease prior to surgery and or af- right after surgery, there are actually medications that we, the, the drugs that target the BRCA mutations that, that you would give to patients. These so are the PARP inhibitors? The PARP that... inhibitors. Yeah, exactly. Um, so like Olaparib and Talazaparib, you may hear, hear about them or see see ads for them or this is the first i really things. heard of them and i yeah. i had to look up what they were i was looking up the mechanism yeah. because i was interested you know because they they were mentioned m- multiple times in here yeah um and that's that's because over the last like five years we've had some landmark trials that have actually found benefit to these agents even not even just in the in the advanced setting the metastatic setting but also in the the earlier stage mm-hmm. breast cancer setting and so i think that's a big part of why why the expert panel decided actually we're going to say all these patients who are under 65 should be tested because it may actually change like the medications that they receive paul do you have any worries about the logistics or yeah. the practicality of this recommendation as a primary care physician, people coming in your office asking you to send BRCA testing. Yeah, I mean that's always that's a low grade terror for me in general, Matt. So yeah, I do I do think it just sort of it requires you to to know more, which I don't think is necessarily a bad thing, but it does it'll open avenues to sort of longer, complicated conversations, which I don't think is necessarily bad, but will make life a little bit more challenging. Are you guys actually sending it in clinic? I'm I'm always curious. I don't. I think, I, okay. I refer to a genetics counselor. Okay. Um, okay. I've fortunately the past few places I've worked at have had one, so I okay. I always just refer to them. Got it. Yeah, and I think I think that depending on where you where you live or where you're practicing, there will be more or less resources from that perspective. And so the guidelines also recommend a kind of if you're ever unsure essentially about risk. Family ri- family history risk or any of this, like what tests to send, even then refer to a genetics counselor or a genetics provider. But that can be 
easier said than done. Well, that recommendation terrified me. So I'm, I feel better having yeah. talked to you about it. I, f- I feel like I understand where it's coming from a bit better now. I feel like that type of testing specifically falls squarely in the domain of like, I will not know what to do with the results when they come back. Right, so like, right. I, yeah. like, like you yeah. say, Matt, like that's where having the counselor there is really, really helpful. I can order yeah. this stuff, but that yeah. means I'll also be getting the results. And at that point, right. then all, all bets are off. Yeah. And the only other thing to mention, which I found really interesting, uh, was that the different panels can test for different things. And so like one test for BRCA1-2 from 10 years ago is that was actually testing likely for different variants, different genetic variants than the tests are testing now. Um, mm. They're more inclusive now. And so, and then Notably, a lot of the direct-to-consumer tests actually don't include all of the different variants, and so you're only—you may only be looking at like the variants that were in the Ashkenazi Jew population, as opposed to the many other variants that we now know are actually important. And so, I would say using the kind of standard ones that the genetic counselor is is recommending is is better. Yeah. Okay. Well. We are going to, Paul, we started with talking about uh, anal cancer. We're going to end talking about STIs and HPV testing, okay? Because um, Alyssa Mancini wrote about a home STI kit that is now available. Um, We don't necessarily have to say the brand name here, Paul, but the FDA granted marketing authorization for the first at-home test for chlamydia and gonorrhea. And um, it's available over the counter for adult patients. It uses vaginal swabs and urine specimens. And uh, after purchase, you activate the kit online. I actually watched a video about how to do this. Um, they show you how to collect your own urine, mix the sample, and and you send it off to a lab. And Paul, what do you think happens if you have a positive result? Great question. I have to imagine, is it like some sort of patient portal you sign up for and that's how you get the result back? Yeah, or? yeah Paul, for... Yeah. So the initial kit costs something like $149, and the uh, physician consultation, which is available in some but not all states, I guess some states don't allow telehealth, telemedicine, um, it's a $39 consultation. The physician will prescribe you antibiotics, and uh, you can go pick them up. They can either mail them to you or send them to your local pharmacy. So uh, that's a thing. Uh, what do you What do you think, Paul? I, I mean, I think it's a, I think it's a, it's a positive, right? Like I, I, it's, I think that physicians, clinicians will say in general, do a miserable job talking to patients about their sexual health. And as a result, patients will often feel scared or ashamed or, and also just access in general is an issue. So I think this is something that has public health implications and the lower the barrier to access to treatment is and diagnosis kind of the better off we are. I am troubled as always by the fact that we live in a capitalist hellscape, but the fact that this... <laughs> may allow someone to get something diagnosed and treated that they may otherwise has long-term and potentially serious public health implications and, and also local implications. You know, they, their partners could get very sick from it. It's, 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 it's a shame that it is necessary, but also I think the fact that it's necessary, just given what the landscape looks like, is, is a net positive. So I, I can't get too mad at it. That was a lot of words. Yeah, well, I think the access is definitely the the good part of this. The website is very nicely done. It's, you know, slick design and everything. So I imagine someone thought there was money in this. I mean, that's the re that I think that's the, the motivation for doing it, but it does have a potential to benefit patients. I, I worry about the cost for a lot of, a lot of people just don't want to spend, you know, are you going to spend close to $200 to get diagnosed and, and treated for this when, if you had insurance, you know, 
this wouldn't cost you much out of pocket beyond like your your insurance premiums and copay, which I guess you could argue is a lot of money. It's a lot of money if you add it up over the whole year. They had there were two different tests. They had like the standard five, and they had the uh, and then an expanded panel. So even though it said it's chlamydia and gonorrhea, when you go to their website, they're also offering like a bunch of other. Um, so that the standard five is gonorrhea, chlamydia, HIV, syphilis, and trichomonas. And then the complete eight is includes those five plus bacterial vaginosis, mycoplasma, and ureoplasma. Hmm. And so it was interesting. The other thing that's on the horizon that's related to this is home testing, like self-swab for HPV, which I think mm-hmm. it would be a really great, um, a really great thing if it does become available. And uh, I was just looking it up. There's something called the um, last mile initiative, which is a, it's, it's basically a big study that's kicking off in 2024. And it's going to look at home, like self-collected, uh, swabs for HPV that can be done at home. And in studies, there's, there's been a bunch of studies of this and it, it definitely like increases screening by like 50% in some of the trials. And it seems like it's, it's definitely very doable. So I, I do think this is something that would, when that is available, I would be really excited about that for patients because it, it's it's one of probably people's least favorite doctor's visits and um, it, it would really expand the amount of people who can be screened. I will also say just from personal experience that access to care for this is really challenging, mm-hmm. even in like a city. Um, and I know a number of friends who like whose PCPs uh, don't actually do PAPS for whatever reason. That's and yeah, no, I mean, this is, yeah. Um, uh, and so then getting into see gynecology, uh, it's difficult. Um, mm-hmm. So I think this I'd be is curious huge. to know what the clinician consultation is. Cause the other thing that occurs to me, Matt, is that like this, uh, you know, the, a diagnosis of bacterial STI in the past six months is an indication to have a conversation about prep. Right. And like, I wonder if that conversation is happening or a conversation mm-hmm. about post-exposure prophylaxis or, you know, it looks like if you, you can pony up the money for other STI co-testing, but you know, are people going to necessarily do that? So, you know, missing a chance to screen for HIV, um, or have a conversation about, um, safer sex practices, like all the kind of stuff that actually happens with an in-person visit that actually has important implications too. Like I, it's, it's great. They're linked to the clinician, but I wonder what that visit looks like and how much counseling is actually given as opposed to, you know, take four of these and call me in the morning. So it's from that standpoint, I do think it represents another missed opportunity as well. So again, I, you know, I think getting these treated quickly and effectively is great, but it does miss a lot, a lot of opportunities, which may have broader sort of health implications in the patient's lifetime. Yeah. That's why you're America's primary care physician, Paul. You're always thinking about, you're always thinking about the patient, uh, patients first. Um, so I think we've come to the end of it. Uh, I think we've done great work as usual. And uh, unless you two have anything else, I, I think we should get to an outro. This has been another episode of the Curbsiders, bringing you a little knowledge food for your brain hole. Yummy. It's about the right energy. I'm a little slow today. <laughs> <laughs> We're all doing great. Still hungry for more? Join our Patreon and get all of our episodes ad-free, plus twice-monthly bonus episodes at patreon.com slash curbsiders. You can find our show notes at thecurbsiders.com. And while you're there, sign up for our mailing list to get our weekly show notes in your inbox. That includes the excellent digest reference multiple times today, which recaps the latest practice-changing articles, guidelines, and news in internal medicine. And we're committed to high-value practice-changing knowledge. And to do that, we need your feedback. So please email us at askcurbsiders at gmail.com. 
It really does help a lot when you subscribe, rate, and review us on YouTube, Spotify, or Apple Podcasts. A reminder that this and most episodes are available for CME credit through VCU Health at curbsiders.vcuhealth.org. Wanted to give a special thanks to the writers for our Digest team for their help with this episode and to our whole Curbsiders team. Our technical production is done by Podpaste. Elizabeth Proto does our social media. Jen Watto runs our Patreon. Krista Chumanchu moderates our Discord. Stuart Brigham composed our theme music. And with all that, until next time, I've been Dr. Matthew Frank Watto. I've been Dr. Nora Toronto. And as always, I mean, Dr. Paul Nelson Williams. Thank you and goodbye. <laughs>